You can tell a lot about people by what they desire. I mean, have you have you ever been been really hungry, really thirsty? Not the kind of hunger that comes when you miss, you know, a lunch or when you just haven't had a, a drink in a few minutes. I'm talking about the kind that goes when you go days without eating, days maybe without drinking. Most of us in the United States have never really been that kind hungry. Typically when we say, I'm starving, that is an exaggeration. I read this week some things about starvation and how it affects the human body. Um, When a person begins to truly starve, their vital organs such as the heart and the lungs begin to shrink. They lose muscle mass. The body begins to consume itself. Body temperature is lowered and the body swells because of fluid under the skin. (laughs) Interestingly enough, a starving person is also an irritable person, it says. Dehydration also seriously affects the human body. When a person dehydrates, the body creates an intense thirst because of the loss of water and salts that are essential for normal body function. Our bodies are... Roughly 60% water, and so it works to maintain this balance. When the water levels are low, the brain sends a message to the nerve centers encouraging us to drink more water. If we become severely dehydrated, our skin becomes pale, cool, and clammy. Our breathing becomes shallow, our hearts beat rapidly, and if dehydration continues, we, we can become nauseous, lose our appetites, and our tongues can become inflamed and swollen. Now thinking about these symptoms... I was reminded of what often takes place in the lives of people that suffer from spiritual starvation and spiritual dehydration. Their hearts are affected and they become cold and hard. They usually are irritable and difficult to be around. Their vision is affected as they have problems seeing the Lord and what He has done and is doing in their lives. Tears of compassion or in mourning for sin are few and far between. Many times their tongues become inflamed with filthy, selfish, angry, and argumentative words. Physical starvation is devastating, and spiritual starvation is just as devastating. How can we make sure we don't suffer from spiritual starvation and spiritual dehydration? We do it by making sure we're hungering after the right things. Open your Bible to Matthew 5 and 6, page 736 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading. God's Word. One verse, Matthew 5 and 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come today with a desire to know you, a desire to be who you want us to be, to live the way you want us to live. Father, this world offers us a myriad of things that we can feed and drink down. Things, Lord, that, that while maybe not bad, they will dull our hunger for things that are good, things that are righteous and true, things that come from You. So, Father, guide us that we would see, Lord, what we hunger and what we thirst after, that we would, we would want to hunger and thirst after the right things and in the right ways. The message today, Father, it it may well be difficult for, for us to hear, for us to accept. So God, give us, one, give us discernment that we would know what's true and what's righteous and what's you and we would embrace it in our lives. 
guide us, Lord, if something is wrong, that we would reject it. We wouldn't just take anything anyone says, no matter who it is, and begin to to live it out, Lord, that we would be sure that it is consistent with Your Word. But Lord, before we reject something, let's be sure that it's inconsistent with Your Word and not just inconsistent with our lives. Let's be sure that the reason that we're rejecting it, God, is, is because we look at Your Word, we've prayed, we've sought You, and it's different than that, not because, well, that makes me uncomfortable and it'll challenge me in my life. Father, humble us today. That we would sit under the authority of your word and we would listen to what your spirit has to say for us today. Open our eyes to see what you have for us in this time. Lord, we know that there is an enemy that seeks to steal and kill and destroy. He wants to take the good seed out of our heart that it would bear no fruit. And he does all that he can to keep people blinded to the truth of your word. Give him no place in this church, in our hearts today. Let your spirit reign and rule in this place. Open our eyes and let your word be like a mirror that we could see ourselves for who we are in the light of your word. And and where our lives do not line up with your word, bother us. Bother us deeply. Father, make us a people that tremble under the weight of your word. That, Lord, where we are not in line with you, that we would cry out to you, Oh, God, forgive us. And we would seek to bring ourselves to alignment with your word. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. That I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. Have your way in every heart and every life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Something that's true for all of us is that our desires are the focus of our life. The kind of appetite we have, it reveals a great deal about our character. Strong appetite for things that come from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Well, that says something about our character. In the same way, a strong appetite for things that are righteous, holy, and true, that also says a lot about our character. Jesus says that there is a hunger and a thirst that is a a blessing, that brings blessing into our lives. And that it is a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. In the physical world, a healthy appetite indicates good health, while a lack of an appetite typically indicates poor health. In a similar way, a good appetite for righteousness indicates healthy spirituality, healthy relationship with Christ. A poor appetite for righteousness indicates poor spirituality, poor relationship with Christ. When the desire for righteousness is lacking, it testifies of a weak and an anemic relationship with Christ. So in a way, this attitude that we're talking about today, it reveals our spiritual condition, the health and the strength of our relationship with Christ. The type of desire that Jesus is talking about here is a starving spirit and a parched soul that craves after righteousness. It's the kind of desire that the psalmist says when he says that he longs for the Lord the way a deer longs for water in a time of drought. It's the kind of desire that the psalmist says when he says that his soul thirsts for God in a dry and a thirsty land where there is no water. It is a desire that is both active and objective. It's active and that it seeks out the object of its desire. 
It's not passive. It doesn't just sit there and hope that this thing that it desires will come to it. It it gets up, it goes, it does what is necessary to satisfy that hunger, to quench that thirst. It's objective in that there is only one thing that will satisfy it. There is no earthly food. There is no earthly water. There is nothing of the world, the flesh, and the devil that can quench this stream, this thirst. It is only a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Now specifically, it is a hunger and a thirst for all righteousness, not just some. Let me explain what I mean by that. Most people have a desire for a measure of righteousness. Some people have a desire to be righteous, but not do righteous. They want to know they're right with God. But they don't really want to do anything because of that. Other people want to do righteous, but not really be righteous. They want to look at their morals, their good deeds, and they want to say, look at how how good I am. They want to do that without ever really coming to Jesus Christ as their Savior. The promise that Jesus gives... That those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that they shall be filled. It is not to those who hunger to be righteous, but not do righteous. And it is not for those that hunger to do righteous, but not be righteous. It is only to those who desire both to be righteous and to do righteous. Jesus promises those who desire all righteousness. Now they will be satisfied. They will be Field. They will be blessed. It's not enough to merely be righteous. It's not enough to merely do righteous. Both are essential to be blessed in the way that Jesus is talking about here. In honesty, both are essential for salvation. The unfortunate fact is that many people in our day, many professing believers particularly, They just want a measure of righteousness. They want bits here. Enough to make them comfortable in whatever condition they choose to live in, but not enough to really change their lives, change their attitudes, change who they are or how they are. Today I want to explain why bits of righteousness is not enough. Why we must desire all righteousness. So first... We want to talk about those who want to be righteous without doing righteous. Now someone who falls into this category, they will emphasize the fact that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So since we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all that matters is that we believe in Jesus. Acts of righteousness that follow are not important. It doesn't matter about our values or our priorities or our actions or our attitudes or our reactions or the words that we speak. or None of that really matters. All that matters, I say I believe in Jesus. And as long as I do that, that's all that matters. Now those who desire to, to be righteous but not do righteous, they fall into two very serious, very damning errors. The first error is the error of baseless security. 
The air of baseless security causes the person to emphasize. Well, since I'm accepted by God through faith in Jesus, I don't have to to worry about how I live. I can neglect it. And that is no big deal. Now, a person who has fallen prey to the air of baseless security, they will brush off any questions about their faith, not changing their values or priorities or attitudes or actions, reactions or their speech. They'll, they'll brush off the fact that they're exactly the same after they have supposedly met Jesus as they were before they met Jesus. And they'll brush it off by saying, oh, dear brother, we're saved by faith and not works. And their thinking is, so long as they affirm faith in Christ, they're good to go. Despite the fact this supposed faith has not had any impact on their lives at all. And I call it the air of baseless security because the person whose faith doesn't change their values, priorities, actions, attitudes, or reactions, or speech, has no real foundation to base the security of their salvation on. Let me show you this from Scripture. Turn with me to James chapter 2, page 931. Now, what we're going to look at, it's a familiar passage. Um, But it's good, I think, to look at familiar things and let them speak to us afresh at times in our lives. James 2, if I can find it, may have fallen out of my Bible. There it is. James 2. Now, look at verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but not have works? Can that kind of faith save him? Now we're familiar with this passage. Faith without works is dead. That's the theme of this particular part of James 2. And what we do is we read faith without works is dead, and we interpret it as faith without works is not best, but in the end it's okay. And yet that's clearly not what James says, and it's clearly not what James means. All right, let me let me contrast some things with you and kind of point this out. Finish this sentence. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believed in Him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. And then fill in the blanks on this one from John 10. Jesus came to give us blank and blank more abundantly. Life and life more abundantly. So those who believe in Jesus receive everlasting life. Jesus gives us life and life more abundantly. But faith without works is dead. Now what about that contrast would lead us to believe that a faith that doesn't produce acts of righteousness is a legitimate saving faith. Nothing. Not really. And that's the point James is making all throughout this chapter. He is saying that a faith that does not change our values, priorities, attitudes, actions, reactions, and speech does not do something in our lives. It is not a legitimate saving faith. It's not real. That that kind of faith does not have the power to save someone. He's saying those who want to, to be righteous but never do righteous, they are not legitimately saved. They're not really Christians. That's why I call it the air of baseless security. 
Because there is nothing to build the security of our salvation on when our faith doesn't produce anything in our lives. Now, James gives a couple of illustrations to drive this home. Look at verse 15. For brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food. One of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Imagine driving home on 412 and you're in between slap out in Elmwood at 2 in the morning. Your car breaks down. All four tires flat. The engine starts smoking. The windows shatter. It's the middle of December. Massive sleet, rain, snowstorm going on. It's two degrees outside. And I pull up. And I roll down my window. And I say, man, that looks bad. Well, I hope things improve for you. And then I roll up my window and I drive off. Have I helped you in any way at all? Have I done anything positive for your situation? Have I made it better in any any way at all? No. No, my words, I hope it gets better without any corresponding actions to actually make it better are useless. That's his point. What does it profit? But the point of that story isn't just to say, if you want to help someone, do it, don't say it. Look at the point of the story in verse 17. Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. My words, I hope things get better, without any corresponding actions to make it better, are useless. And a faith without works is just that useless. It is no more valuable, no more life-saving, no more helpful to us spiritually or eternally than words without corresponding actions. Now, people are going to push back against James. He knows that. So he says in verse 18, well, now some say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So what people will say is, well, there's, there's two kinds of Christians. Right? There's faith people, and there's doing people. Right? And both are equally valid. Faith people, they just believe. And action people, well, they, they do. They, they do things. That's why they're doers. Now, it's equally valid. You be a, you be a doer, brother. Go with your bad self. I'm just a, I'm just a faith guy. It's just who I am. I'm just as, we're, we're the same. We just have different role in the kingdom, man. And James says, well, no. I mean, what, what evidence is there of your faith? All you have are words. I mean, if that faith doesn't impact your life in any noticeable way, what what value is that? That's his point in verse 18. Faith people, one of the things they have to do is just kind of always go around and say, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. But action people... People look at them and they see their life and they go, oh, that's a Christian. They know God. They follow scripture. They see it in how they act and who they are. Everyone can see it in their values, their priorities, their attitudes, actions, reactions, and speech. James's point isn't both are equally valid. His point is 
One's real. And one is just words. And then, and then James gets, he gets mean. Look at verse 19. You believe there is one God. Good job. Even the demons believe and tremble. Do you really think, he says, accepting certain facts to be true is is good enough? And then he points to the ultimate example of why this is wrong. The demons accept the fact that there is only one God. They know this to be true. They know that one God. The demons, in fact, can affirm with absolute certainty Jesus was born of a virgin. They were there. They can affirm with absolute certainty that Jesus lived a sinless life. They, they tried to tempt him and it failed. They know without doubt that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of humanity because they did everything they could to derail it. And they're absolutely sure that Jesus rose from the dead. They, they saw it the day that it happened. And yet... Heaven is not going to be their home. That knowledge hasn't changed their values, their priorities, their attitudes, actions, reactions. Their speech produced a single act of righteousness. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Affirming certain doctrinal truths is not faith. A faith that does not impact who we are and how we live does not lead to action. It is a dead, powerless faith that cannot save a soul. And then in verses 21 through 26, what he does is is he explains... That faith and action work together. Abraham, the first good example of this. Was Abraham our father not justified when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that his faith was working together with his works and works and with and by works faith was made perfect, as the scripture said, as the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. But Abraham believed. And that faith is what made him righteous. But how do we know that Abraham believed? Because he did what God said to do. When God said, get up out of the land of your family and go to a land that I'll show you, Abraham didn't say, well, I believe you, God. I believe you'll give me the land. I believe you'll give me an heir. I believe you'll make my descendants as the sands on the seashore and then set back down and do nothing. He wasn't a faith person. He was an active person. He was a doer. When God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, the son that you love, the son of promise, and go to a mountain that I will show you and offer him as a sacrifice there, he didn't say, I believe you, God. I believe this is the path. I believe this is the way forward. I'm going to trust you and then do nothing. Did he? What did he do? He got up and he went to go offer his son, as God had said. And so his works proved his faith. Made complete his faith. 
What good would Abraham's faith have been had he not left the land? What good would Abraham's faith have been had he not gone to offer Isaac as God had said? It would have been useless. It would have been nothing. And the other example, oh, so you see that a man is justified by, by works and not by faith only. The works demonstrate the faith. Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? She believed. That's what she told them. We believe your God. It's great and awesome. He's going to conquer this land. He's going to give you, give you people all of our land. I, I believe you. So here's what I'm going to do because I believe you. I'm going to hide you. I'm going to tell you how to get out of here. I just want you to spare me when you guys come back. What if she had said, well, I believe. Man, I believe your God's going to conquer everything. And then when the king's men came in, she said, oh, they're right over here. Her faith led her to do something. And so she was spared. First, the body without the soul or the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Faith has never been shown by words. It never has been and it never will be. Faith is always shown by the actions it produces and only a faith that changes that that motivates that does something it's ever really seen as a saving faith anything else it is a baseless security to base our salvation on the error of baseless security but also the the error of loose living those who are taken in by this error, they feel the grace of God allows them to live however they want to. They are secure and comfortable with their faith despite the fact that they consistently live in sin. Some may admit that sin might hinder their relationship with God, but they would reject the notion that a sinful lifestyle says anything about their salvation and their right standing with God. Despite what Scripture says. Jude says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Jude was writing to a community telling them to earnestly contend for the faith because false teachers and heretics had, been, had come in and were causing problems. One group of heretics that had come in was a group that had come in to teach that the grace of God was a license to sin. Since we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, we live however we want to. Grace covers our sin. You just go on. Seen in the, I heard a guy say once that he loves to sin and God loves to forgive. They have a great relationship. Kind of that mindset. But notice how Jude describes these people. Now, as we look at this, keep in mind, this, this isn't what I would say about these people. This is Jude writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is writing God's thoughts on those who turn grace into a license to sin. First, he calls them ungodly people. I mean, that's never a good sign when you're being referred to as ungodly in Scripture. Second, they have been marked out for 
condemnation. Which means they are still under the wrath of God. Thirdly, they have denied God and Jesus Christ. So through their teaching that the grace of God is a license to sin, they have denied Christ and their teachings have made a mockery of what He did on the cross. Right? Because if if sin is okay, Jesus dying for sin is an awful, awful cruel thing, right? Now the obvious conclusion from this is that those who, who teach or live like this, that they're not really Christians at all. Right? Because Christians are never called ungodly. They're never said to be condemned. We're free from all condemnation. It's critically important that we understand grace isn't a license to sin and anyone who teaches that it is. They're not teaching us the way of Jesus. By their teaching, they are denying Christ. If we live this, we believe this, we are not Christians. By our words, by our actions, we actually deny the Lord who died for our sins. Grace offers forgiveness of sins. Grace empowers us to overcome sin. But grace is never permission to live in sin. The desire to be righteous without doing righteous produces a false righteousness. You never find in Scripture where it teaches being righteous without doing righteous following. You cannot separate the two. Anyone who has been made righteous by Jesus will then do righteous in their lives. Saving faith in Christ changes us. The desire that Jesus blesses, it is a desire to be righteous and a desire to do righteous. Secondly, those who want to do righteous without being righteous. Now this may sound odd, but let me explain Those who fall into this category focus on all the things that they do that they think make them right with God. Right? They won't smoke, dip, drink, or chew, and they won't date girls who do. Um, Others will focus on being good moral people. Some will give to charities, including churches. Some will join churches. They'll be baptized. Um, Others seek to help others in their time of need to be compassionate and kind. All of these are, are good things. And all of those things likely flow out of our faith in Christ. But none of those will make us righteous without faith in Christ. And that's what those who want to do righteous without being righteous seek to do. They seek to point to the things that they do and say, look, look at what I do. This proves that I'm a good person and I'll go to heaven when I die. And this attitude leads to one main but really serious damning error. And it is the error of self-righteousness. The error of self-righteousness causes us to emphasize that we are, we're okay, the big guy upstairs, because of all of the good things that we do. We do our deeds. We generally live moral lives. We may follow certain rules that we've laid out. 
But we don't really believe in Jesus. We don't see a need for that because we're look at how good we are on our own. Now the air of self-righteousness typically gives way to what, what I guess what you'd call a fair exchange policy. Now a fair exchange policy is when a person sees something wrong in their life, something that doesn't line up with Scripture. And rather than doing something about it, bring their life into conformity with this word, what they do is they, they point out something else that they do right and they make an exchange. Yes, I do this wrong, but I do this right, so my right takes the place of my wrong. And as long as I'm doing more right than wrong, I'm flush and I should be good to go in eternity. A person who is self-righteous will say things like, well, I can't be that bad. Look at this good deed that I did recently. Look at this action that I've taken. That means I'm, I'm okay. And they always trade off their, their good deeds for their bad deeds in their life. They never, they never really evaluate their lives to see if they're truly a believer in Jesus Christ. What they instead say is, I know I've sinned, but the good I've done offsets the sin I've committed. And they pick and choose what they do in an effort to be righteous or to do righteous, but, but never really in an effort to, to be righteous through Jesus Christ. Now, Scripture says the fair exchange policy that the self-righteousness, it doesn't work. Right? Paul said that by the deeds of the law, no flesh would be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, think of justification as being made righteous. And think of the law as the Ten Commandments. There is no amount of law keeping that will make us righteous. And let me explain why this is significant. Because the reality is, no one actually tries to keep the law in an effort to, to be righteous or to do righteous. Instead, what most people do is they make up their own moral code. And the moral code may draw from Jesus do unto others as you'd have them to do unto you. It may draw from the law, don't murder. It may draw from various other religions and, and moral codes, but it's a, a mixed match of religious ideas and personal morality. Now, if according to verse 20, no one will ever be made righteous because of their adherence to the law, a law God Himself gave. How much less will a man-made law make me righteous in the sight of God? But I mean, if today you couldn't take the Ten Commandments and begin to do them enough for that to produce righteousness in you, if that can't happen, how much less will your own personal ideas about what is good and right and true produce a real righteousness in you? It can't. It won't. Not now. Not ever. The only way to be righteous is through faith in Jesus. The righteousness that God gives that, that, that counts does not come from keeping the law or doing good deeds or the moral codes that we come up with. It comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul said, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. If we could be righteous through our actions of the law or any good deeds, 
then Jesus' horrific death on the cross was an unnecessary waste of time. And it was a cruel, cruel joke by God the Father. The desire to do righteous without first being righteous, it produces a false righteousness. You will not find in Scripture where it teaches to do righteous without first being righteous. That's why we desire all righteousness. It's not enough to do good things. We have to be righteous through Christ. And when we are righteous through Christ, we do good things. Why we do what we do always matters. I have to do what I do because I'm accepted, I'm forgiven, and I'm saved. And if I'm accepted, and I'm forgiven, and I'm saved, I will do. I will do those things that God wants me to do. Now the blessing that Jesus promises to those who desire all righteousness is that they will be filled. When we hunger, we thirst after all righteousness. We will be filled with that. Holy Spirit will work through us. And we will, we will do righteous deeds. He will lead us to do the things that Christ would have us to do. He will change our values, our priorities, our actions, our attitudes, our speech. And our lives will testify of the fact that we believe in Jesus. And are seeking Jesus to be righteous. Well, that's faith. It will produce, it will cause him to change and to bring righteousness into our lives. When our strong desire is to be righteous, to do righteous, God will fulfill that. Jesus will fill us and we will be satisfied. We will be filled to overflowing with righteousness. So the question is, How much do you desire righteousness? Do you desire it at all? Do you desire just enough to make you comfortable? Ease your conscience? Or do you desire all righteousness so that you can be righteous and you can then go out and do righteousness? Jesus says that if we desire all righteousness, we will be filled. But it has to be all. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, think about what we've seen in the Word. If your desire for righteousness, to be and to do righteous, is lacking... It's important to recognize that that is a serious spiritual problem. Something is not right. And you must seek God to fix it. It may be that you're not genuinely saved. You've never truly cried out to Jesus Christ and trusted in Him as your Savior and Lord. And if that's the case, that's where you have to start. Everything has to start there. Everything always starts with faith in Jesus. 
If you've never done that, today in this moment, you, you make that decision. You call out to Jesus to save you. If you have trusted in Jesus and yet still the desire for righteousness is lacking, it may be that you've let things go in your relationship with Christ. Maybe you've let sin come into your life to quench the thirst and the desire for righteousness. Maybe that you've simply neglected to make your relationship with Jesus a priority. And that has numbed your hunger and your thirst for righteousness. It could be that you're just so busy in life that you're feeding on everything. But the word and prayer and time with Jesus. And it is dulling your hunger for righteousness. Whatever the cause, take this opportunity right now to seek Jesus, to find out for sure what it is. Confess it, forsake it, and reestablish your relationship with Him. Let's take this time and pray and seek the Lord.